So Brian, uh, we, we had a very interesting guest today, probably, um, you know, one of the guests who's had the most diverse background out of, out of any of our guests and, um, one who kind of, um, cut their teeth in leadership in the military. And I've got to say, you know, it's, uh, humbling to hear, uh, about some of the, uh, scope of, uh, the leadership responsibilities that uh, Brett Williams, Major General, uh, retired U.S. Air Force, uh, who has uh, uh, been speaking with us today, just the scope of his leadership responsibilities. Um, but the interesting thing is, as we continued to talk and you distill it down, it's the same themes of everything that you and I have talked about with so many of our other guests and that you and I have experienced and, and, and shared just as you and I have talked together uh, on this podcast, that there are um, a, just a, a specific group of themes that seem to be universal uh, with technology and leadership. Part of that is about making sure that you have a seat at the table, regardless of what kind of industry you're in. And so to hear someone with the breadth of experience that he had uh, in the United States Air Force, speaking to that same kind of theme, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was somehow validating at, at the same time that it was uh, really enlightening. You know, as I was doing my homework on it before we, we hopped on the show and I, I went to his website and he had this great quote. It says, technology changes every day, but technology will never be replaced by good leadership. That's kind of where, where we are, even with our theme of this podcast. So I guess with that, Brian, it's a good spot, you know, to uh, just uh, you and I hop off here and let our uh, you know audience listen to the show. Sounds great, Nick. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. And we're joined today with our special guest, Brett Williams, Major General USAF, retired, and current COO of IronNet Cybersecurity. Uh, we're going to chat with him about a broad swath of topics today, I'm confident. Uh, thank you very much, Brett, for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh, it's great, Nick and uh, Brian. I appreciate uh, y'all giving me the opportunity to, to chat with you a bit today. I look forward to the conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, looking at uh, the schedule you keep, it looks like, you know, every hour is precious. So <laughs> we're particularly appreciative of you uh, sacrificing a sliver of it with us. Uh, so, you know, part of what I learned in reading a bit of your background is you started off as a fighter pilot. So probably cybersecurity was far from anything that you were necessarily thinking about in your early days in the Air Force. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, even how you started thinking about uh, a career in the Air Force and, and where that led to becoming a pilot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is a, a question I get a lot, especially from younger folks, and I feel bad that I can't answer it very well. Um, I've, I've <laughs> I, In fact, I've gone back to my high school yearbook, and I've looked through there to try to find the picture of the guidance counselor who told me, um, so are you interested in flying? Uh, well, maybe you ought to apply for an ROTC scholarship and apply to be a, a pilot. And um, have you thought about where you're going to school? You ever heard of Duke University? You know, and I know. So I applied for the scholarship. I applied to be a pilot. I applied to go to Duke. I got accepted all those. So I said, yeah, that's good enough. And, you know, off I went. And, you know, this was obviously well before the days of the intense uh, college 
applications process <laughs> that we have today. But uh, so uh, off I went to Duke University. Um, my wife and I both uh, graduated from there. She commissioned into the Air Force the uh, same day I did. She served for 20 years. Uh, wow. I served for, uh, for 33 years. And um, now we've been married for 38 years. Uh, I've got uh, I've got two kids. I've got a daughter that works in banking, and I've got a son who also didn't want a real job. He's a fighter pilot. Uh, so, uh, he's uh, he's an F sixteen pilot uh, down at uh, Shaw Air Force Base in in South Carolina, and he's married, and his wife works in construction management. So um, so that's a little of my personal background, but. Um, yeah, so I start off as an F-15 pilot, and kind of the way it works, if you make the normal progression and end up where I did is, um, you know, you can think of it as your first 10 years or so, you're an individual contributor, more or less, right? You're an mm -hmm. F-15 pilot, you're being the best pilot you can, you're upgrading to flight lead, instructor pilot. Um, and it was really, I always make this point that, um, and I just learned this word reading uh, Bill George's book about True North. Uh, this word called uh, generativity, which is there's three three stages of leadership. There's learning to be a leader, there's leading, and then there's generativity when you feel this uh, this desire to train the people that are going to replace you, et cetera. And uh, when I read that, I figured out that didn't have anything to do with being old. It had to do with um, <laughs> it had to do with when you became proficient at a certain level. Uh, and you started to teach other people to do the same thing at a higher level, that that's when you really start getting the satisfaction of, of growing the, the leaders that will replace you. So, so when I became a, a proficient instructor, I went to something called the Air Force uh, Fighter Weapons School, which is a lot of people equate it to Top Gun in the Navy. The Fighter Weapons School in the Air Force is much more difficult and longer. But anyway, I'll leave that alone. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, as a, as a captain in the air force, when I became a pretty proficient instructor, I, I of course still, uh, greatly enjoyed doing well myself and flying the airplane well, but I found, I took all sorts of pleasure in, you know, teaching that new wingman to, to fly, you know? And so now as, as I continued in my career, you, you, you start to broaden, uh, you become a commander. My first command was a squadron at Langley air force base, uh, about 350 people, but, you know, 50 of those were the motorcycle gang, the pilots, right? The other, <laughs> the other 300 were the, um, you know, all the people that maintained the airplane. So that was my first real taste of uh, cross-generational leadership because they're all 18 to 25 years old. Uh, it's my first taste of real responsibility outside of just executing the fighter mission, which is tough in itself, you know, but now you are responsible for leading all of these people for making decisions on, uh, you know, the terms are the same, you know, different in the private sector, but you're doing talent management, talent acquisition, you're doing feedback, you're doing performance development, you're providing vision, motivation, budget, you know, all of those things. And, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're running, uh, an organization that is much different when people think of, Oh, you're a fighter pilot. Um, Right. So, you know, as I progressed through these things, my, my last operational job, I was commanding the Air Force's largest combat wing. That's at um, Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, Japan. And um, I've been, uh, I found out over time that, again, even as a general officer, the average person in the public doesn't understand what that, that means. So just to give you a taste of what that job was like, um, about 9,000 people in my command. 
Um, of course, I had uh, there are five different types of airplanes there. Uh, one of which was the F-15, which I continued to fly, and I'm proud to say was an instructor still uh, at my advanced age. And then, uh, but you know, <laughs> so we still had the operators, uh, the people, the air crew that flew the airplanes, the maintenance people. But now I had, for instance, I had 1,500 civil engineers. Uh, I had a 500-person hospital. I had a 2,000-person support group that did security training, ran our legal system. Uh, handled the 2,000 Japanese employees that worked on the base every day. And then on top of that, you know, I was kind of the mayor of this community of 25,000 military <laughs> people and families and stuff that lived over there. And, um, and if you don't know, Okinawa is one of our most difficult overseas locations because the politics are, uh, uh, they're so tough over there. The Okinawa people are awesome, uh, but they bear what they call the burden of, of hosting most of the American forces over there. So, so, you know, you look at that job and you look at, um, you know, what certainly, you know, there's a lot of Fortune 1000 businesses that you could run that maybe don't have that span of, <laughs> of diversity, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. So, so I share that um, because I found it necessary to kind of anchor people in, you know, and I wasn't unusual. You know, if you make that, that, that rank, that, those are the kind of responsibilities you're expected to be able to do. You're supposed to be expected to, to lead large and diverse and, and complex organizations. So, um, so it came time for me to leave there and I got a call from my boss, the four-star general down in Hawaii. I was a one-star and he says, uh, you know, it's time to you leave and, and you're going to be going and working at this place called Pacific Command, which was headquartered in Hawaii, but they were the command that was responsible for all operations in the Pacific, not just Air Force, but Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And um, you're going to be what's called the J-6. And if you don't understand how military staffs are organized, uh, the one is uh, J-1's intelligence, uh, or I'm sorry, J-1 is personnel, two's intelligence, three's operations, where I thought I should be working, uh, four's logistics, five's plans, there'll be a test later. Six is six is where all the cool people work, the IT people, the command and control systems, the cyber. And so what that was, was the, I would argue the first recognition by one of our four-star senior commanders that we had to stop looking at IT and cyber and all of that as a support function, right? You, you can't have forces spread over 52% of the earth's surface, as we like to say. And if you can't command and control them, right, if you can't issue orders, make sure they get to the right people, that they don't get to the wrong people, that when they get there, they haven't been modified, that they get there on time, et cetera, et cetera. If you can't do that, then you aren't going to execute your mission. Okay. And mm -hmm. so his view was, we've got to put somebody in there from an operational background um, so we can operationalize this function. And then um, what I found out very quickly after getting in the job is that the people that worked in there, they were more than smart enough to do this. The problem was nobody ever invited them in the room <laughs> unless, unless the video teleconference didn't work. Right. right? Yeah. So, so on one hand, you are potentially delegating strategically important decisions to very junior people who have no idea what the mission priorities are, not because they're not smart enough, they're never invited in the room. <laughs> so if I reflect on my five years now in the private sector, working all sorts of, you know, in my company, but through a variety of different things I have working with all sorts of other companies, the dynamic is exactly the same. People are realizing that you don't know run a business. I don't care what size it is without being able to operate in cyberspace. Right. Mm -hmm. Yet they still struggle. Why can't the CIO talk in business terms? How come they can't talk to the board and make sense? You know, blah, 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 blah. Well, have you ever brought them in the room when you had a significant business discussion, et cetera? 
you know, so that's changing, especially some of the bigger companies, but a lot of other companies, you know, it, it's not. And so, so I spent the last five years of my career doing mostly cyber and IT. I finished at um, United States Cyber Command. So I was responsible for operations and um, defense and, and planning offensive operations uh, for the Department of Defense. And then uh, when I retired, I co-founded uh, IronNet Cybersecurity with, um, uh, with my former boss. Uh, he was the director of the National Security Agency. And so we've, uh, we're about five years into our startup journey and we're learning what everybody learns. It costs more and it takes longer than you would like, but, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're doing well, we're growing and, uh, you know, and that's where I am today. So uh, well, that is fascinating, Brad. Thank you so much for sharing that background. And, and I was remiss in not saying thank you for your service and, and thank you to your, your wife and son as well. Well, thank you. Um, that is uh, just astonishing uh, in, in scope, but um, it's also reassuring to a degree to know that uh, even at that scale, uh, the, the challenges are really no different than many of the things that Nick and I have talked about for, you know, 40, 50 person organizations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and certainly the constraint that you identified around who do you bring in to have a seat at the table whether or not you believe you're a technology company, if technology is truly the backbone and part of your uh, delivery mechanism that your entire business <laughs> is dependent upon, uh, you should probably be strategizing in a different way when it comes to uh, inviting technologists to uh, uh, be part of your executive council. Well, exactly. Um, you know, what I found uh, in the military and then as I've worked with, I've been in a, about 15 or 16 boardrooms uh, working with the National Association of Corporate Directors. So go in and do anywhere from two to four hours with the board on managing cyber risk and all that. And I make the same point to these board members that I made to the three and four star generals is that um, you need to have an adult conversation with your technology leaders, just like you do with your CFO, your general counsel and your COO, mm -hmm. right? Um, I talk about, you can't have a Barney style conversation and depending on your... your <laughs> The, the, you know, depending on your generation, that's either Barney the dinosaur or Barney Fife. But, but, but you know what I mean, Brian, if you're my CFO and I'm on the audit committee or I'm the CEO, I know exactly what to ask you and I know if the answer makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm talking to the COO, the same thing. But then if I go to Nick and he's my CIO, then I go, hey, Nick, is everything good? Right. And you see what I'm saying? That's a completely different dynamic. So yeah. what, I, what I tell him is that uh, you know, you have got to take time to learn some of the basic concepts, the terms, that sort of thing. So you can make the same strategic risk decisions involving not just cyber, but, but technology writ large. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, as we, we talked about a little bit earlier, I'm, uh, really looking for the kind of how to share some of this in a broader perspective, just beyond cybersecurity and broader leadership context. And mm -hmm. I've, I've kind of been playing around with this thought that, uh, uh, and it really comes off what you just said, Brian, is every CEO today is a tech CEO, or at least they should be, right? Yep. <laughs> or at least they should be. And that doesn't mean you're a tech leader. That's a different context. But as a CEO, you have to be technically aware you have to be technically conversant. You have to understand how technology, what benefits it brings to my company and what risks I'm incurring by using this technology, because all of it comes with both sides, right? Risk and benefit. Yep. And, and that's, I think that's the name of the game there. 
I love that. I And I think you bring up a good point. And I think Domino's Pizza has actually been a big player in that, right? They always say they're a technology company first who just happens to sell pizza. Right. Um, and I mean, I think that's a huge point. And, you know, you kind of brought up your experience. And when I was poking around and kind of doing my research, um, you know, you had this article that said the five things that you need to tell your your new team. And I, th- I thought that was a great great article and it was just good for anybody in general when they're new on a team um you know you said uh why am i here um what are my goals how do i like to communicate um what am i going to change and when and what is my leadership philosophy how did you come to those those five things well one of the things that uh you know and we all learn by the leaders that we follow but uh i had a uh, when I was that squadron commander and um, kind of in the Air Force, squadron is the first, then group, and then wing. And so when I was a squadron commander, the wing commander was the big boss. And I remember um, his name was uh, Steve Goldfein, Goldie Goldfein. You know, we all have call signs. Nobody knows our real first name. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh, so he brought us all in, all of his squadron commanders, and he took 45 minutes and just went down this list of you know, basically here's how I do business, you know, and, uh, I did what I did throughout my career, which is I'm taking notes, right. I'm writing down, here's things I see from leaders that really work and I want to emulate, but just Mm -hmm. as importantly, everybody can serve as an example, if only as a bad example. So you write down things that you will never repeat and do. Um, (laughs) but anyway, (laughs) so, um, so I had my list of things that whenever, you know, whether it was a command or, you know, cause we'd go to staff jobs and that sort of thing, uh, things that I would convey. And then back to this mentoring thing, uh, in the same way I was an instructor pilot for F-15 pilots, I became an instructor pilots for new commanders. So we had a course for, you know, you're going to become the wing commander in Okinawa. You come in and we spend two weeks, you know, talking to you about how to be a wing commander. So one of the things I always passed on to them was, Hey, what are you going to say day one? People want to hear from you. And so that specific article, though, Nick, came from, I did a talk in New York City a couple of weeks ago with a company called um, Tech 2025. And um, it, it was very, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to talk leadership to a completely different audience. You know, a lot of civilians, all civilians, obviously, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know, Quite a few millennials, uh, some Gen Zers, and, um, uh, you know, without breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, but I spent an hour afterwards with people lined up to talk to me. And um, and one guy sent me an email and he said, hey, I'm, his name was Carlos. He's in the post on LinkedIn, but he said, um, hey, I'm taking over this organization here. What, you know, what should I do? And I pulled out my, my list of things that I carried around. I thought, you know, I've never actually written this down. So here you go. This is what I would, here's what I would, here's what I would do. Um, and that's the stuff I like to write about and talk about. Like, you know, I love books like, you know, this one I just recently read, I mentioned Bill George's book on true North. I read Mm -hmm. another one hacking, uh, life hacking, I think not too long ago, but you know, a lot of the leadership stuff I see, I think is, I call it the philosophical stuff, which Mm -hmm. is really important. It's, you got to know what you got to know what yourself. You got to know what's important to you. You got to understand what values you won't compromise. You got to understand what's my leadership style. Is it authoritative? Is it collaborative? Is it whatever? I got to be mindful. I got to be all of that. But the the there's no but. All that's important, okay? But what I find that I like to convey and seems to resonate the best is these 
relatively quick, practical things, right? I'm going into a new organization. What should I do? You know, okay, here's five things I would make sure I convey. People are going to ask this, you know, Hey, I've got to do my first feedback session with someone who hasn't done too well. You know, how should I approach that? You know, Mm -hmm. those kind of things are the things that I like to write and talk about. So when I had that opportunity, I said, well, let me write this down. So (laughs) I really like that because I'm, I'm a huge fan of, you know, just simple, easy things to remember. Um, you know, like I'll see people post something else. will be like the 35 things a new leader should do. I'm like, well, I'm not going to remember 35 things. Right. 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 (laughs) Boil it down to the most, you know, the the greatest five things I should do. I mean, that's, that's just a great list. I, I really think you should do like put that in some type of like print form and just kind of hand it out when you speak. I mean, it's, it's a great resource in my opinion. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, that's awesome feedback. And, uh, you know, I've started writing more and more of this on LinkedIn, just, uh, um, you know, I keep thinking is a book the right thing to do, but it just seems so easy to write a book. You know, there's so many books, there's just so much noise out there in general about leadership is, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get through with your message? And I think you just, you just keep putting it out there until you see where it responds. And so just like this, getting linked up with, uh, the opportunity to speak with you guys, because, um, you know, like some of the stuff, you, uh, one, one of the first things I saw in yours was uh, you have that discussion on leadership versus managers, you know, and yep. I remember, you know, our company is obviously a tech company. We're building a software product. I hadn't been there very long and I, I can still see it. Um, you know, there's certain things there in your memory and you can see it. I can see this conversation with these three software developers and they're talking about how they don't want to be people managers. And I said, well, first of all, <laughs> I said, you lead people and you manage resources. And I'm telling <laughs> you, these guys are these guys are all 23 and they're looking at me dumbfounded. They have never heard this. They go, what do you mean? Right. And I said, well, leadership is about relating to people. It's about understanding what makes them move, what gets them excited, uh, because you got to understand that if you're going to get them aligned behind the vision of the company, if you're going to be successful, all that resources you manage, which are time, people and money. Right. Nobody has enough time. Nobody has enough people and nobody has enough money, right? So the manager side of a leader, and I believe leaders have to be both. Um, I don't know how much you want to go down this trail here, but it (laughs) irritates the crap out of me that uh, um, when I see these discussions about, oh, we have way too many managers. You know, you look at the org chart in there and I go, well, I don't see how you, you know, you've got a team of eight or nine people that's doing pick whatever it is in your company that somebody is going to be the most experienced, right? They're going to mm-hmm. kind of do the workflow. They're going to do all that kind of thing. So, so they're going to manage the team, but at the same time, they've got to provide leadership because it's that next level manager that c- communicates the vision from the top down that uh, does the feedback and the performance assessment that makes sure that I know that you know, Nick's ultimate goal is actually to move horizontally over into marketing at some point where Brian's goal is to move up and take my job. And Brett's goal is actually to leave the company in two years because he wants to start his own thing. So so it's that leader Mm -hmm. that understands what makes each person on that team tick so that as long as you have them there, you're getting the most out of them. But the way you get the most out of them is you position them to be wherever they want to be. So, you know, that's the leadership side, in my view. The manager side is, Hey, we, we got too many, you know, everything can't be number one priority or, you know, I, I need Slack premium or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, so, so those kind of things. So I, I, I love you guys. Uh, the context you put around that is one of my favorite things. Oh, that's great. Thank you for the feedback. You know, this is, uh, 
I mean, such a strong uh, theme for us in, you know, all of the discussions that we have, whether we're talking with guests like yourself, whether we're uh, working in another leadership uh, forum, it, it seems to be one of those concepts that is, uh, you know, once the light bulb goes on, people get it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's almost like developing people from that management mentality into that leadership um, you know, thought domain, uh, it's, it's really like there's some kind of uh, transformation that has to take place there. Um, for us, you know, really uh, trying to discuss it, pull it out through exercises. I mean, these are things that, you know, we've been passionate about ourselves and creating a, a curriculum where we're taking people who are uh, junior, right, who may never have even thought of themselves as, well, my, my next ambition is to go become a leader or a manager somewhere uh, and actually giving them practical tools through exercises mm-hmm. to be able to undergo that type of transformation. What have you found that is effective in trying to help develop talent in that way uh, with folks that you've worked with? Yeah, well, I think step one is, um, and I'm just, I, I, I'm doing this at, uh, fly, I'm building the airplane as I fly it, but you really prompted <laughs> an interesting question in my mind. And, and it's not like I haven't thought about this before, but I, I was about to tell you there's two components to this, but I just realized there's three. So I think the first thing you have to do is you've got to look at people, and I think they fall into um, to one of, of three categories, right? That uh, they have potential to be a leader, and they want to be a leader, okay? Uh, they have potential to be a leader, but they don't want to be a leader, okay? And they don't have the potential to be a leader. So it it doesn't really matter whether they want to or not. You've got to get them the feedback that says, you know, Hey, this is going to be a really long road for you, you know, et cetera. And feedback is another area I'm passionate about. So I'll I'll leave that, that last category alone, but you know, the challenge there is the person that really wants to, like, I've got a story I've told all the time about a young fighter pilot. He wanted to go to fighter weapons school. He wanted to be the greatest F-15 pilot there ever was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that just, I I knew it wasn't going to happen, you know, for him. But he had all these other skills, right? Mm -hmm. And fast forward 20 years later, he retired as a one-star general. I was at his retirement and he brought up that conversation that we had had 25 years earlier and said, I wouldn't have been as successful as I was if I hadn't gotten that feedback because it told me these are my strengths, these were our focus, okay? So then that takes you to the other two, you know, the people that have the capability to be leaders and want to be leaders, Right then, you know, the, the challenge then I think is, is understanding or helping them understand this isn't going to happen overnight. Um, you know, that there's a lot of work you've got to do on your side. A lot of it is that reflection, what's important to you, all that sort of thing. And then we have to come up with a plan together on how we're going to get you the experiences you need, you know, so that you start developing because, the things I've read recently, I, and I don't know if this number's right. I, you know, something like $200 billion was spent globally last year on leadership training and maybe $10 million of it can be proven to be effective. So, you know, how effective are, we'll send you off for three days, you know, we'll have a two day seminar. You walk out with a bunch of those little spiral bounders, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> All that. those can be useful, but that takes, you, you got to be deliberate about it. You got to get the value out of, you know, those sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. so for the people that can be leaders and want to be leaders, then we got to figure out the best way. And each one is going to learn a little bit differently. Right. Um, I've recently run across a framework that says um, 
you know, that that kind of leader development, 70% of it ought to be on the job training, right? Um, maybe you're an individual contributor now, I'm going to put you in charge of, of this project, right? It, it lasts two months, you know, it's in your career field, but these other two people are going to be working with you, but you've got the lead. So once a week, you're going to out brief us, let us know how it's going, you know, that kind of thing. So you, so you find ways and that's mostly the way they learn to do it. But 20% of that learning is coaching, right? So you've got mm -hmm. to have somebody that's really good at mentoring and coaching because um, mentoring and coaching isn't the same as feedback, right? So if you work for me, Nick, and I'm doing a good job of feedback, then we're having routine conversations, you know, every couple of weeks, uh, we've got some specific goals we've set, you know, I've written some of this on LinkedIn too, but then, um, you know, there's some formal feedback that happens, et cetera. If I'm going to really be coaching or mentoring you on your, your leadership, it needs to be deliberate. It needs to be specific because if we're working together every single day, then you're trying to do things better. You're trying to do things different. You're trying to reach out. I'm probably not going to see that because I know what Nick's like. I've got to, you know, so if I'm going to be your coach and mentor, I almost have to be somebody who's not in your, your, mm -hmm. your managerial chain. Somebody that's really observing is qualified <clears throat> to observe. Right. And now I'm sitting kind of as that third party, if you will, looking kind of peripherally at this and say, you know, here's what I see. Here's what I hear, you know, that kind of thing. And so 20% of it's got to be that deliberate coaching and mentoring, but that's not an easy job. You got to have the right people doing that. And then 10% is, you know, this, the more formal training and um and that has to be done in a way um i don't know if you're familiar with the center for leadership studies they, they have the situational yep. leadership model so uh good friend of mine sam shriver's the 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 coo there and i actually had them into our company in full disclosure about a year ago very well received that was an interesting one because i had people come up to me a lot of tech people two or three months later and go i had no idea that i needed something like that but I just so appreciate getting that leadership training, right? That, which mm -hmm. takes me to that, that other person, the one that thought they never wanted to be a leader. I can think of all sorts of examples in my military career where there were people that, because uh, you get to a certain level, uh, there's things you have to volunteer for. You know, most things you're voluntold, but, you know, <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know there's, there, but there's certain positions that you have to volunteer for. And I had a senior enlisted woman who'd done just a great job and she would been perfect to take this other role and, Oh, sorry, I just don't want to do that. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. So I kind of twisted her arm, you know, and eventually <laughs> she did. And she took that and there are different levels of that. She took that up like three more positions, ended up retiring as a chief master sergeant was one of the best there is at what we call this, this command master uh, command chief master sergeant position. So, so I think that's a long way of getting at if you're going to train people, right. First of all, you got to figure out what kind of person they are. And then it's got to be, it's got to be deliberate. It's got to be planned. And frankly, not just anybody can do it. You got to have people that understand how to coach and, and mentor, I think. No, I think that's a great answer. And I think it also, you know, resonates with something that Nick and I have talked about, you know, quite a bit, which is the, the training component, having some kind of exercise to help take what's theoretical and immediately put it into action so that you're developing some muscle memory around it because there's so many different learning styles, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people, some people, they, they need to listen. They need to take notes. Some people, they need to see something visual. Some people are kinetic and they actually have to interact with something before it really makes sense. So having a learning model that encapsulates yeah. as many of those different types of learning styles as possible is, 
uh, I think is also a valuable uh, facet yeah. to consider. Yeah. Yeah. No, to that, that point, Brian, you know, everybody, not everybody, but you know, people go, I've been successful at, at, uh, you know, leading or managing or whatever it is. And then they go, you know, uh, so I'll just be a coach or a what better, you know, you got to have some kind of framework, right? You got to have some kind of model. You've got to have some disciplined way to, to approach this because, um, you know, otherwise I can't just, you know, hop on the phone with you and start going, Hey, how's it going? You know, so there's gotta be, you know, there's gotta be some disciplined way to, to go after this. And then, uh, and then I think that, um, while I think a lot of the cross-generational stereotypes we bring up aren't necessarily valid because I read stuff about what boomers are and I go, I don't look anything like that. So what makes me believe millennials <laughs> look anything like this, right? You know, so, so I think a lot of that is, is, um, has to be taken with a grain of salt. But I do think, to, to your point, um, it reminds me of the golf analogy. I, you know, I play a lot of golf is that you know, when you're teaching somebody to play golf – some people, you got to put your hands on them. You know, some people, they watch somebody else do it. And then some people here, I want you to do this, right? Same thing. So <laughs> right. some people, a role-playing thing helps really well. Some people watching a scenario on a video works really well. Some people reading about it, having to write it out, you know, all sorts of different things. So I think to your point, I think the point you're making is if you're going to be effective at this, you got to have several different ways to teach the same thing. Yeah. Um, but they have to have, I think, a way, like when I do my keynotes, um, you know, on cyber, uh, I know I'm getting successful when you see them reach for that little pad of paper that's underneath the mints in the middle of the table, you know, <laughs> and they bring it back and they start writing stuff down because my goal is you walk out the door with three things. When you go back to your company, you can start doing it. So same thing with a leadership training thing. I want them to walk out the door with three things I can do different today. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can see if it works. I've got a way to measure whether it works, you know, that sort of thing. And I just want to bring up, you, you brought multi-generational, you know, leading of teams. And it, it kind of seems like, you know, for a while, the millennials have been bashed on. And now now even the baby boomer generation is being bashed on by the younger generations with the OK Boomer thing. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, in Generation Z. And just in my experience, you know, um, most people always kind of want the same things. Don't doesn't everyone want to know what their mission is? Doesn't everybody want to be doing something better than themselves, contributing to something great? Um, but I mean, in your experience, you know, because you've led hugely large teams, um, what what are some of kind of your takeaways from leading a multi generational team? I mean, I know just between generations, things are always going to be different, right? Just because everyone's experience and time is different. But um, what are, what are some of the things that you have learned that you can, um, you know, give to our audience? Well, I, I think um, there's several things in no particular order. I, I think one of the most important things that you've got to understand is, uh, is as a leader, communication. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, sayings about that is it, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what you heard. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the first things I've got to do even if I'm leading a team of everybody the same age, but especially multi-generational like that is, uh, you know, the message that I'm putting out at the top of the organization, how do I know what message is received at three levels down? And the only way to know that is to get out and walk around and talk to people, right? Uh -huh. uh, because I can't go out and personally, you know, 9,000 people, I can't personally go out and touch each one of them, you know, and, you know, there's, there's leadership theories or management theories that, you know, that, uh, you know, once you get beyond eight to 10 direct reports, right, you, you can't have a direct influence on, you know, many more people than that. So you've got to have a way that, that that message cascades down. And so having a way to check 
that your message is getting out in the way you want it to get out. And that doesn't mean it has to be verbatim, right? Because, you know, if we just took the, the, you know, the, the boomer running the organization and then he's got the, uh, you know, the Gen Xer, uh, S, you know, VPs, and then he's got, you know, the senior millennials and the junior millennials and the generation Zers down here, you know, that, that, you know, somebody a couple of levels below me is going to be possibly better at communicating to that brand new employee in words that make sense to them. But I have to make sure that, you know, the vision, the, you know, the, the basic things that we want to have happen that they get, they get translated in the right way. Um, but at the same time, I've found that, um, you know, I mentor um, Duke students out here. I work with a lot of ROTC cadets. I, 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 I think if you just talk to people um, and you, you spend a little bit of time understanding their world that, you know, you can communicate. Um, one thing that struck me over the last couple of years between both working in my company and with some of these other groups I've worked with is, is uh, these 25-year-olds, they're dying for leadership stuff. Uh, I really see it in, in formal conversations, informal conversations. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity. But, but to me, the biggest thing is communication. And I think it's learning to use uh, other communications that means that maybe you haven't been comfortable with in the past. Um, you know, the whole quote unquote social media, you know, that goes all the way from, you know, Facebook and that kind of thing to how does your company use Slack or what's it mm -hmm. called a Microsoft one team? You know, those are social media things. Uh, we use a, an HR platform called, uh, called quantum. And, uh, I primarily drive it. So people enter individual goals in there, but that becomes because, you know, it's got likes and it's got posts and it's got shout outs and it's got uh -huh. all that. So so to me, that's where the boomer, you know, or the Gen Xer has got to figure out, you know, how can I leverage those platforms to make sure I'm both not both to make sure I'm communicating. Remember that communicating is some of it's talking, but most of it's right listening and, uh -huh. and making sure you get the, the message back. So so to me, the biggest thing is. It is about communication, um, but the second thing is, is that kind of to your point earlier, Nick, is um, uh, again, the example I use, we got a 25-year-old software developer. He's a rock star, right? He's one of our top two or three folks. And um, there was a period of time when I was overseeing our engineering uh, area, not that I have any expertise in that, but we needed somebody to go in there, uh, you know, as we were looking for the right uh, lead for that area. And, um, uh, you know, I started reading about Agile and reading about Scrum and reading about some of these ways to, you know, set objectives and get more specific and requirements and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and there was some pushback. Well, we don't want to do that. It's too much process. I said, it's, it's, it's a process to make you Agile, right? <laughs> you know, et cetera. And he came up to me and he goes, don't, he says, he says, don't let them win. Uh, we're on the right track. I mean, he said, without planning, without process, or without requirements, we call that chaos, right? And so this is this, you know, this young guy who absolutely was looking for what's the direction, what are the priorities, how do I, how do I contribute? So I think you're exactly right. Um, everybody wants to know, and then I call it connecting the dots. Um, mm -hmm. How does what I do every day contribute to the, to the mission of this, this organization? And um, not to kill you guys with stories, but uh, uh, during desert, um, during desert storm uh, two, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I'm over at a base in Saudi Arabia. It's literally in the middle of the desert. Um, 
I had the ops group at the time, one below the wing. So about 2000 different people flying all sorts of different airplanes and stuff. And we all operated out of this place called ops town, right? That's where all the aircrew were. Um, but whenever the comm guys came in, even to fix a phone, they were fired up. They were professional because somehow their boss had conveyed to them how important their job was, right? Because it's not hard uh -huh. to convince the pilot how important <laughs> his or her job. It's not hard to convince the person loading the bombs on the airplane. You know, they can connect that to the airplane taking off and going on its mission. But the guy that fixes the phone, how do you convince him? And then draw that back to there were literally people that deployed for a year to work in the gym handing out basketballs. So look at the leadership it takes to make that person understand their connection, right? They got a lot more dots to connect. So, so I think that's another thing people want is help me connect the dots from what I do to this company generating revenue. right? <laughs> and, and as a leader, you should be able to do that. You should be able to help them figure that out. And when they come to work motivated that way, you're going to get a lot more out of them than just, you know, am I making more than my buddy over at, you know, ABC software. So. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that we, we give a little bit of time to uh, your current area uh, of work in cybersecurity. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's a topic that I think, you know, anyone in any company, <laughs> whether it's a, a, a forthright technology company or not, you know, security is top of mind for a lot of folks. Um, there are a lot of leaders who really are scratching their heads and don't even know where to start. Uh, in some of your engagements with your current company uh, and kind of blending that with some of these leadership techniques that we've been discussing, what are some of those things that are the most critical areas that you feel like, you know, someone who's in a leadership role, but may, may not understand the importance of security, what are those key takeaways that they need to understand for their own organization? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I'll start that, uh, with a conversation I had earlier today, I was talking to, uh, to a guy who's writing an article for a magazine. I know you guys read frequently. It's the general counsel journal, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's writing an article for the general counsel journal and it's about, you know, where does managing cyber risk belong in the company? You know, super important question. What's the role of GCs in doing this? You know, all that stuff. So, so super important. And I, I give you the example just to show this is being worked on. You know, th there's a lot of people thinking really hard about this, but the, I think there's two sides of this. On the business side, you have to take the discussion away from cybersecurity to, to really risk management. So like when I would go into these boardrooms, I always started with a discussion of enterprise risk management, you know, and just kind of um, I would review their enterprise risk management, you know, how had they done it? What did they, you know, go in there? What's that thing called their, uh, you know, their SEC filings, they mm -hmm. always list whatever the you know risks are and all that kind of stuff. And I would tell them nine times out of 10, I said, I don't see cybersecurity risk as any of your strategic risks. I said, uh, did you hear about Yahoo? They dropped $350 million in value in two months from the time mm -hmm. this leak was exposed. For sure. Um, you know, millions and millions of dollars. 60% um, of small and mid-sized businesses are out of business after six months following a breach, right? Yep. That how can this not be a strategic risk? for you, right? And so you start down that discussion. And so it becomes, it's not the most important, but it should be one of the strategic risks you are concerned with, right? Because uh, 
your attack surface is so big, right? And mm -hmm. understand, and you have to understand the cost, right? Because most people think, well, the cost is to, you know, recover this data or pay for identity insurance or whatever, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? The, the next level of cost is the, the liability costs. Uh, you know, I used to have a slide I showed, it was four years after the target hack and they're still settling lawsuits about who's gonna pay to replace the credit cards, right? So the liability side of this is huge, right? And then a real intangible cost here is things like reputation cost, uh, the operational cost. In other words, you can recover from this, this breach, whatever it was, but the time you spend doing that is the time you're not spending driving your business forward. So there's some <laughs> lost opportunity cost there, right? There's cost of increased regulation, right? Every time there's a big mm -hmm. hack, what's the first thing that happens is Congress says, oh, we need some more regulation and oversight, right? <laughs> so you just introduced, you know, more costs there. So, so when I'm talking to business leaders, I try to put it in the context of this is a risk that has to be managed like every other risk. You're never going to get rid of this risk, right? So you have to get an understanding of what you're doing technically, but really the CIO and the CISO, but you need to learn enough back to our earlier discussion where you can ask pointed questions, you know, the answer in BS, uh, that when they come to the board, make sure that if the statistics they're briefing you are not giving you a warm fuzzy that we're going the right direction, then sit down with them and figure out what do I need to be doing from a metrics perspective to understand, because it's not just measuring dollars, right? But from the business leader side, the biggest thing they've got to be able to do is assume that they're going to be hacked and how are mm -hmm. they going to respond to it? And at the business side, it's all about communication. What am I going to tell my employees? First people to sue Sony were the employees. What am I going to tell my customers? What am I going to tell my partners? What do I have to tell law enforcement? What should I tell law enforcement? If I'm a regulated business, what do I have to tell the regulators? You know, what is my communication plan, right? And if the CEO gets a call at three in the morning on Sunday and Nick has to go, I'm sorry, who is this again? All right, then you haven't prepared for this breach well enough, right? Mm -hmm. You haven't done that. So, so that's kind of the, how I try to make it an important and an issue that has to be worked, you know, from the business leader side. And then as you roll down from that, you get into all these other basic leadership tenets. You know, how do we connect everybody to the mission? How do I provide, you know, feedback? How do we assess performance? What metrics are going to drive us? You know, what are the leading indicators? We're doing this well. How do we compare with others in the industry? You know, it's all of these basic leadership tenets. And then on the technical leader side, what I find that I need to do is um, I kind of leverage the fact that I sat in those shoes for three or four years. I understand how I ignored and mistreated the, the CIOs and the CISOs of the of the world are. And I yeah. thought it was bad in the military, but the, the first engagement <laughs> I did in, in the private sector was with a, a, to be unnamed, large, 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 a wall street bank. And, um, you know, talking to some of the business leaders and talking to the CIO CISO staff on how they've been treated. It was, uh, I, I, even I was amazed as cynical as I was about the environment <laughs> I was going down, I was amazed at what a gap there was in, in, in those two groups. And so, um, so I think s some cross pollinization, you know, back to the leadership thing, you know, Nick's been at our company for seven or eight years. God, we'd really like to keep him. He's up and coming, whether he's consultant or whatever it is. Um, you know what, Nick, I'm going to, I'm going to do what they did to general Williams. I'm going to send you over to work 
for Brian, the CIO, and you're going to work for him the next three years. And then you're going to come back. So how valuable would that be for you now, 10 years down the road, when we're looking at making you the COO, that you've got this, you're completely fluent in technology. And I'm not just talking about the cybersecurity. I'm talking about how do we leverage tech to move our business forward, right? Do I let every business unit bring in whatever app they want? You know, how do I measure ROI mm-hmm. on that? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So growing a generation, I think, of leaders that is fluent in business and fluent in technology, of which one aspect of that is certainly the cybersecurity, I think is part of the leadership challenge we have. No, I love that. And Brian, I always joke that the CIO and the CISO is, you know, the other executive team just views them as the better dressed help desk. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, hey, my iPhone's not getting email yeah, yeah, <laughs> as yeah. soon as you walk in. Right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> But that, that's, a, that's a great rundown. So I want to be respectful of your time. And you know, there's this one question that we always ask our guests. Do you have a book that's had a big influence on you? It doesn't have to be a book. Maybe it's a piece of media, uh, HBR article or something. Yeah. So I, I got asked this a couple of podcasts ago, and I didn't have a great answer. So I actually gave it some <laughs> thought. And, and after listening to me uh, pontificate for the last 45 minutes, you'll, you'll probably not be surprised that uh, I don't have a single answer to that. Um, but uh, but I'll give you, I'll give you three kind of categories of stuff that I found, uh, amazingly impactful. So in 1993, I spent a year in a a course. That's another thing people don't realize in military and, uh, 33 years, I spent four full years in formal education. I mean, like real professors, real writing, real reading, (laughs) uh, all that thought. And this course was called the School of Advanced Air Power Studies. And it was literally the book a day club. You met four times a seminar, two hours a week. Uh, You read a book a day and you wrote and all that. And the the purpose of the course, I thought at the time, was to teach you, you know, it was kind of at the nexus of, of military strategy and politics and national strategy and those sorts of things. But what the really course was really all about was critical thinking, right? Is is questioning your assumptions. It's uh, proving that there's causation, not correlation. It's mm-hmm. challenging other people to is that fact or opinion? Just just tell me which one it is, right? You know those sorts of things uh, because I'm interested in your opinion, but I, I want to know it's an opinion, uh, not fact. And there were two books in in that course that have that that have stuck with me. One was the uh, the essence of decision making, and uh, what that was about was the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and it went through four different models on how the U.S. government decided to handle that, and and it showed you really can't prove which model, but you know, and I don't remember the details of it. But there's there's one model that wraps around the decision was made because of the strength of the leader. There's another one that's wrapped around uh, to uh, actually make the organization survive politically the way it's always been bureaucratically, you know? So, so there's different models of decision-making and you just got to realize which one is driving you to the decision and make sure that decision is okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and realize that these are the factors affecting the decision and they may not have to do with the facts of the case. They may have more to do with the, the, the political dynamics, et cetera. And I don't mean political as in, Republican, Democrat, I mean, organizational politics. And then the second book was called um, Thinking in Time. And it was all about um, how people misuse historical analogies to make decisions. (laughs) Oh, I think I'd love that book. (laughs) So so think about that in the business world, right? It happens all the time. Oh, because we were able to get into this segment (laughs) of the market and deliver this product, 
we should have the same sales guys given the same pro you know over here whatever the case may be you know it's it's the classic why are we doing it that way because we always did it that way well that's <laughs> about the worst answer it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it that way but you really should be thinking about it so so those two are are important to me um then the um the other kind of series of of things that i've found are interesting is things about how uh, humans work and how the world works. And uh, uh, I read a book called Sapiens um, oh, yep. about four or five <laughs> years ago. And in fact, I was at dinner this week and there was a guy at another table talking about this book Sapiens he read. I mean, the book's, you know, five or six years old. Um, I'm trying to remember uh, the author. It's an uh, Israeli author, but uh, uh, oh, Harari. Uh, oh, yep. You, you know, and he's written a follow on. I haven't read it, but that book was fascinating to me because it got to kind of his theory of how all of these things that we just take for granted as being facts of life, everything from money to religion to corporations, you know, that it was interesting to me because he starts from the premise of, you know, I can't remember, but it's about 50 people that you can keep oriented on something because we've got family ties. We live in mm -hmm. the same town, whatever. When you get bigger than that, you got to have something else that gets people <laughs> organized and motivated to go same direction. Right. And so he went through all these, these things. Um, the other thing I read was really interesting is um, this uh, book called the story of the earth. It was the author is Hazen. And mm -hmm. it was, it, it was mostly the geological history of the earth, but, and then it touched on the biological history of the earth, but to me, the, there were two aspects of it that were fascinating. Is one, how the hell did they figure this out? And two, <laughs> yep. it's, you know, I got a friend that says, don't look into the abyss, but it starts getting you to think, you know, the sun's going to go out in 5 billion years, you know, and we, we are spec, I don't remember if it's that book or it was another book, but it said, if you took the entire history of the earth and put it on a calendar, right? <laughs> dinosaurs showed up on like December 12th. Right. <laughs> humans, humans showed up at 1259.30 on December 31st, right? right. That's, that's how small, you know, yeah. we are. So anyway, and then the last thing is just uh, really with my current efforts to, um, to figure out, you know, I've got all these brilliant ideas, as you all have heard, but, you know, how, <laughs> how can I, you know, really fill my passion and figure out, you know, where can I put these to use? How can I get these out? And, um, uh, I started listening to a podcast, um, by a guy named Peter Winnick, who does, he's got a company called thought leadership leverage. And so he, he puts out a couple of podcasts a week, but, um, he talks to people that have, you know, very well-known thought leaders and doesn't talk to them about their topic, but he talks to them about all the work they had to put into all the content they had to build all the time mm -hmm. it takes to do this. How do I target, you know, how do I, you know, and all of them are, you know, are passionate about, they have something they want to say. Uh, but what really motivates them is, you know, I got something I really want to talk about. Wouldn't it be cool if I could make my living doing that as opposed to nights and weekends, you know, putting out content and then going to a job, which I may not like as much, you know? So, so that's kind of three things, the things, everything that drove me to be, a, and I will call myself a critical thinker. Uh, I think things that make you think about, put your life and our lives in perspective. I thought those couple of books were interesting. And then as I'm kind of going into this, um, this phase of, uh, you know, really trying and we call it part three, the military guys do you, you've got your military career, then you usually go into some kind of business and then you go into kind of a, 
a part three for some people that's, they go play golf all the time, uh, which, which I would do, but I, I keep finding myself working out in the mornings and thinking, God, I got to write an article about the five things that you should do when you open up a team or, or how to give feedback. Or I don't know if you guys saw the one I did on uh, the aerodynamics of leadership, right? I did. That's what yeah. actually drove me to your, your profile. Right? Like, oh yeah. my God, this is an amazing article. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. you know, and the one I just wrote on, um, uh, we call it the debrief, you know, when you finish, when you finish flying the mission, Hey, if you're going to sit down and figure out what went right, what went wrong, how to get better next time, then why even fly, you know? And so, uh, I talked about how much time we spent doing that. And, you know, I question, uh, from, you know, things I've seen in the private sector is, is, uh, how well do we do, you know, I think the businesses that do best are really good at setting goals, um, really good at monitoring progress towards the goals, uh, and then occasionally, just like in Scrum and Agile, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have a time for retrospective. You stop, right? And you realize that's not, I'm too busy working to figure out what I've been doing right, right? Really? You know, wouldn't you like to know if what you were working on was producing the results you wanted? But, you know, like Yogi Berra said, if, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. So if you don't set goals, <laughs> right? If you don't set goals ahead of time, then... How are you going to measure progress towards them? And then if you don't reach the goal, if you don't stop and take time to figure out why I didn't reach it, then, you know, now you're with Einstein's theory of, uh, you know, insanity, right. Right? keep, keep yeah. doing the same mm -hmm. thing and expect different results. But just as importantly, Hey, we kicked ass on this goal. What did we do? Let's reinforce it. Let's do more. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or that was what we needed to do to achieve that one. Is that what we need to do to achieve the next one? Because we don't want to spin our wheels, right? And go, wow, we succeeded there, but now we're stuck. You know what I'm saying? So the discipline of, of what I put in that little article, plan, fly, or plan, brief, fly, debrief. Plan, you know, that, that cycle. And, um, and just, and I say ruthless in there, but I had to learn, we call it the 90-10 rule is, mm -hmm. You get into a debrief, you spend 90% of the time talking about the 10% that didn't go right. And it's because that's where we know we got to get better, right? Mm -hmm. But what I learned as you get leading these larger and larger organizations, you know, people didn't grow up with that. And, you know, I found, um, you know, my leadership style had to evolve because I found people who I, I had to spend more time saying, Nick, you know, I really appreciate you what you did. This was really cool. This really benefited us. Like, oh, yeah, this is one little area that we need to, you know, I'd really like to improve on, you know. But Brian may be the kind of guy that I hit him in the side of the head with two by four and go, what don't you get about this? You know, so you just got to figure out, you know, what's the best way to, you know, to communicate with people, to influence people and that sort of thing. So. Well, clearly you've sized this up well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, yeah, they can't see the video here, but you do look like you've been whacked a couple of times. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Brad, thank you so much for making us part of your part three. Uh, and this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And uh, you are definitely a critical thinker. So uh, really appreciate uh, all of your contributions today. Um, any closing remarks, Nick, about uh, the guests that we've had here? Oh, no. I, I, I'm just going to tell you, you need your own podcast. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> told you that yet, but you, you should definitely do your own. Um, you know, just want to thank you for your service, all your time, you know, and your families. Um, we really appreciate it. You guys keeping us safe here. And um, if people are looking for you on the Internet, you know, you said you're a keynote speaker. Um, you know, we'll be sure to tag everything in the show notes and in promotion. Yeah. But where, where can people find you? 
Yeah, I've got a, a couple of websites. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I merge these personas, but the main one is the cyberspeaker.com. Mm-hmm. And I've got another one, Brett Williams Leadership. Um, I put out uh, most of my uh, content really on my LinkedIn page. So either articles or comments on posts, uh, I do a lot there. And then uh, about six weeks or so, I said, uh, I've got to get into the Instagram world. So uh, I'm on Instagram at uh, General E.T. Williams. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, figuring out how to, uh, to build a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a following there. And so uh, you'll see some, some posts there. And uh, so I figure out, you know, well, the picture's got to be square on that, you know, as opposed <laughs> yeah. to it's got to be, you know, yeah. so I'm, yeah. I'm working through that. So. Uh, but yeah, basically LinkedIn is, is, you know, if you really want to see my content, that's the place to go. I'll be getting more of that onto the website. And then, um, uh, and then I'd love some more followers on Instagram. And, uh, um, and now what I would really love is people on, you know, DM me on LinkedIn or Instagram, uh, cause I would always rather talk about what you want to talk about. Right. So if people have stuff they want to hear about, you know, based on they've heard one of my podcasts or they've seen something, then ask me just like that guy did up there. And, you know, it prompts me to write five things you should tell a new team. So, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you guys. And, uh, I did, I did subscribe to your podcast today. I picked out a couple that I want to listen to. That's why most, the, the sport. Most, most of the time in the car. So, uh, I will, uh, I'll definitely be checking you out and following you. Well, well thank you so the much. Sport. It's been a right. real, real honor having you on today. Thanks again. All right. Thanks guys. Thank Let's you. stay in touch. All right. All right. Thank we'll you. See you later. Bye.